Father, we pray that you will indeed speak to us and give us ears to hear your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. God has created some amazing things. And I decided to just show us a few of those this morning. This is the Columbia River Gorge. Victoria Falls. Mount Everest. space. And human beings have also created some amazing things. I, I, love to, I love to look at pictures of the skylines of some of the great cities of, of the world. And there are great feats of architecture that people have created. One more. You know, the, the, these human creations are, are inspiring. And I'm here to tell you that eventually every one of them is going to crumble. Everything that's created is eventually going to be destroyed. All of the creation that, that human beings have put together is going to crumble, either by human hands or by just falling apart over time. Eventually, all that we as human beings create is coming down. And it's not because I say it's going to happen. It's because Jesus says it's going to happen. He says in the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel that we've just read, that in the last days, what human beings have built and created is going to crumble. Mark tells us that he and his disciples, Jesus and his disciples are, are on their way out of the temple when the disciples stop Jesus and, and they draw his attention to the massive stones of the temple. The temple is the pride and joy of the Jews. The temple area, including the, the temple building itself, had been rebuilt by Herod the Great. And in order to accommodate the throngs of Jews who, who came to Jerusalem for the festivals, they built a courtyard that was about 400 yards by 500 yards. Now, that's taking five football fields and putting them end by end and about the width of eight football fields side by side. And that's just the courtyard. To accomplish this, this amazing feat of architecture, they had to build this stone platform that, that was created because of the ground that fell off underneath it. They built an enormous retaining wall to hold the platform in place. And some of the stones were 70 feet long by 7 feet tall by 9 feet deep. It's a couple of models of the temple. It covered approximately one-sixth of all the city of Jerusalem. And it was a beautiful place with platforms and porticos and, and courts and colonnades no wonder the disciples stop Jesus and say, isn't this impressive? But instead of Jesus stepping back and, 
in awe and gushing all over it. He says, guys, get over it. It's all coming down. In the last days, all the stuff that you think is so impressive and so important to you and so inspiring to you, all of it's coming down. And the disciples say, look at this. And Jesus says, look at this. And Jesus paints a picture of that day, a picture of destruction and disaster and persecution and and pain. Jesus paints pictures that are intended to strike our hearts with the gravity of what lies ahead. I've been thinking about this prophecy and others as the events of the last few months have unfolded. The cyclone in Myanmar and the earthquake in China and flooding in the Midwest. Our world has experienced some terrible disasters. And it makes you wonder if the day isn't drawing closer than we think. And then you think about all the wars and all the violence that that seems to be the norm in so many places of the world. and, And actually seems to be increasing exponentially. And you have nations testing uh, nuclear missiles, terrorists setting off bombs every day. We're in an economic crisis that's settling in upon our nation and nations of the world. Price of gasoline is skyrocketing and the price of food keeps going up and banks are failing or, or teetering on the brink of failure. And you ponder all this and you can't help but wonder, you can't help but worry. We live in uncertain, fearful times. And the signs are all pointing to the end. There is no doubt that the world is ripe for what Jesus talks about, for his return. And then I remember that that these kinds of things have happened before, numerous times. Physical and economic disasters and false messiahs and persecution. It's been going on since Jesus first spoke these words. And it continues today. There are some people who want to claim that the world has never been like this. But it has. I'm reminded that every time, every era, every moment is ripe for Jesus' return because we simply don't know when. Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour when the end will come. And so he simply says, be ready. Be ready today. Be ready tomorrow. Be ready this week. Be ready next week. Be ready next month, next year. Be ready. Because we don't know. And it's difficult to to be ready, to be alert, to keep watch when you don't know the precise ending time. But being ready is staying focused all the time precisely because you don't know the exact end point. I didn't grow up around soccer, but I've come to enjoy watching soccer. I often have to ask about some of the rules and things that are going on, but I'm learning. One of the elements of soccer or football, as it's known in the rest of the world, one of the things that intrigues me about soccer is the clock. Or better, I guess a better description is, is how is the, maintain, the maintenance of the clock. I, I can't think of any other sport 
in which only the referee knows exactly when the match is going to be over. Every other sport has a clock in some form that ticks the time down to zero, and you can see it, and all the participants can see it. And even the sports that don't have a clock, like tennis or baseball, have a, have a definite ending point. You play nine innings, or you play three sets, and it's over. And everyone knows that, except in soccer. And, and we were watching uh, the Euro 2008 matches a few weeks ago, and this clock thing was, became evident to me again. Because of injury time or because of other stoppages of play, the clock that runs up to 90 minutes doesn't mean when it gets to 90 minutes that the match is over. The referee adjusts the time based on his or her impression of how long they waited for an injury or for any other kind of stoppage of play. And so sometimes the referee will add two minutes or three minutes or sometimes more. And there's no clock in the stadium. There's no clock on television that tells you exactly when the match is going to be completed. And so the players have to simply keep going, keep pressing, keep passing, keep tackling, keep shooting until the referee blows the whistle. And even when the clock reaches 90 minutes, you keep playing until you hear the whistle. And Jesus says, we can't worry about when the, the last cosmic whistle might blow because only God knows. And our responsibility isn't trying to figure out if we can, if we can surmise when that time's going to be. Our responsibility is to keep moving forward, to keep pressing on, to keep growing and loving and caring and sharing. Jesus says, keep alert Keep watch, be ready, because you don't know. And, of course, that begs the question, how do we get ready? How do we watch? How do we stay alert? What does that mean? Now, there's some people who don't believe that, that the end is ever going to come, at least not in our lifetime. I mean, they see the patterns through the centuries of, of disasters and persecution and all these things that Jesus talks about, and we're still here. So why worry about it? Because it's not going to happen. Other people go to the opposite extreme and, and they think it's going to happen today. And so they just stop living. They sell all they have, pack up their bags and are sitting on the porch waiting for Jesus to pick them up. They stop doing anything except waiting. But waiting for Jesus doesn't mean you stop living. The scriptures tell us that, that watching, being ready, staying alert is always going to involve keeping our focus on God first, loving him and loving others. It's being obedient as the spirit leads us. It's giving ourselves to the daily tasks of life that come to us. It's walking close with God in the midst of those tasks. It's living so connected to God and so in tune with the will of God that as Jesus says in verse 13, we endure to the end. But it strikes me as I read this passage that maybe there's something specific about watching in this passage. It seems to me that maybe there's a message here about the things created by human hands and by the creator that has something to do with what it means to wait and to watch, to be alert and to be ready. 
It's a balance. Sometimes a difficult balance. That we give thanks for what is created without seeing what is created as the end. That we give thanks to God for the gifts he's given us without turning those gifts into the things that we worship. I've been thinking about this passage over the past few weeks, particularly as our organ project is nearing completion. And we give thanks to God for that. It's been a long time, but we're getting there, getting close. I mean, this is a beautiful, wondrous thing. You walk into the building and you see it and, it, and it's, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And the sounds coming out of it are beautiful. We are so grateful for all of the people who have, who have given to make this a reality and to God for helping us make it a reality. I think about this passage when I look at the stained glass windows in this church. I mean, honestly, it's unusual for Wesleyan churches to have these kinds of windows. And when you consider that this church was built in the early, early 1930s, I give thanks to God for the people who made sacrifices and probably for some people who stood up against opposition and said, we need to put in windows like this so that you and I now, decades later, can look at these windows and be inspired to the history and the universality of the church. I'm grateful for musicians who help us worship for the ancient hymns that stir the soul and for modern music that stirs the soul. I mean, we sing, oh, 4,000 tongues. Uh, my, my heart leaps and my, uh, and my mind races and my spirit soars in worship to God. And when we sing, blessed be your name, my heart races and my mind leaps and my spirit soars in praise to God. But the balancing act is being certain that in our joy at at how the organ helps us worship, that the instrument doesn't become more important to us than God. And that when we look at the windows and they help us worship, that they don't become more important to us than God. And when we sing hymns and and when we sing songs of the modern songs, that, that they help us worship, but that they don't become more important to us than the God to whom We give our worship. I wonder sometimes if it's possible that we are actually spending more time and energy and focus on the created things than on the creator. Now, it doesn't make us pragmatists. We don't judge simply what's right and wrong or, or good or bad. We're not just looking at the bottom line. I don't think pragmatism is is really a biblical perspective of life. In fact, I'm convinced that pragmatism is a secular concept that we think is a Christian concept. It seems to me that pragmatism is what often drives us to busyness. A pragmatist sees life purely from the perspective of the bottom line. What's bringing in the most people? What's most popular? What's going to give us the, the highest return for our investment? I'm not sure those are always the best questions that the church should be asking. I don't think God is primarily a pragmatist. If God were primarily a pragmatist, 
I don't think he would have created thousands of different types of flowers or thousands of different insects or thousands of different species of birds and fish and wildlife. If God were primarily a pragmatist, we wouldn't have hills and valleys and and mountains. We wouldn't have so much of creation that's simply beautiful to enjoy. And I don't think God would have given human beings such creative minds and and energy to use those creative minds to do all the things that we're able to do. God is concerned with much more than just the bottom line. And the human creations that inspire us are gifts from God to us for our enjoyment, but also to help us worship God the Creator. I suspect that many of you who are here for Alumni Weekend came because you wanted to see some people that you haven't seen for a while. What a, what a great time that is. And for some of you, perhaps many of you, it's also an opportunity to, to revisit some places, some places that hold special significance for you. Places, buildings, instruments, They're not just important to us because they're beautiful or because they inspire us, but because they're integral to something important in our lives. This church is a meaningful place to many of us because it was in this church that that something spiritually significant happened in our lives. Maybe this altar is significant to you because it was kneeling at this altar that something spiritually significant happened in your life. Maybe it was someplace on the college campus that's meaningful to you. Because it was there you received your education. But more than that, you had an experience with God that, that set the direction for your life even to this day. Maybe Wesley Chapel is your place or, or a dorm room or a spot on one of the cross-country trails. For me, it was an old, worn-out, burnt orange couch in the living room of the apartment where I lived at George Fox College in 1979. And that place is special to me because it was kneeling at that couch that I surrendered my life plans to God. It's because of that couch, kneeling at that place, that I'm here today. And there are other significant, spiritually significant places and moments for me in in Estes Chapel at Asbury Seminary and across the street from, from Asbury Seminary at Hughes Auditorium at Asbury College. And you who are alumni have come back this weekend, and maybe you've revisited that place, that spot, because you want to remember, and in remembering, you want to recharge your spiritual batteries, and that's a good thing to do. In the Old Testament, God tells Israel that when they get done crossing the Jordan River, they're to take 12 massive stones and stack them up, And every time they walk by those stones, remember. When their children walk by those stones and ask, what what does that mean? Tell them and remember and use that to recharge your spiritual batteries. God has the people celebrate Passover as a means of remembering and in remembering, refocusing. The Sabbath is intended to not just be a time for rest, but a time to refocus on God. Like the Israelites, we tend to fall into the trap of worshiping the places and the structures 
and the special moments. Instead of letting the places and the structures and the special moments turn our attention to God. Because if stuff becomes more important than people, even the spiritually significant places and things in our lives, if any of that becomes more important to us than God and other people, then we're not on the right road of preparing our hearts for that day when Jesus returns. We have a tendency to worship the created instead of the creator. We tend to worship our human resources and structures rather than the one to whom the resources and the structures are intended to point us. Sometimes we care more about things and about what we do than about God who created them and gave them to us. Our hope isn't in buildings or organs or windows or worship styles. Our hope is in God. And as wonderful and beautiful and inspiring as buildings and windows and and instruments and places are, they're all temporary. They're all going to pass away. Our perspective about them is vital to being ready and alert. It was early spring, 1984, and I was just about ready to ask Cindy to marry me. You know, when you propose, you want to do something memorable and exciting. So I was thinking, uh, I had to plan, we'd go out to dinner, and uh, during dinner I would do something uh, interesting and exciting and get out on one knee and, and propose to her. I didn't own a car, so I had borrowed a car of a friend. And just as we were leaving the seminary there, we were both students, it began to really pour down rain. We were driving out, and and we hadn't even gotten out of town yet, and throwing the windshield wipers and and going back and forth. And about the third pass, as it's going back and forth, the driver's side windshield wiper just flew right off the car. It was one of those things you go, what? What just happened here, you know? So I stopped, and... I thought, well, we can't do this. You know, I didn't know where it was. It's dark. I don't even you know, somewhere in the trees or something. So I turned around and went back, and I was so frustrated. I had this great plan in my mind. And I don't, Cindy couldn't figure out what in the world I was so upset about. Okay, yeah, you lost a windshield wiper. She didn't understand everything else was going on in my mind in that night. So I had to postpone it. I don't know, a week or so later, I came up with a safer plan, better plan. We're both students at the seminary, and we're in the library studying there. It's in the Kentucky, Wilmore, a little outside of Lexington. And uh, I came up with this plan that I thought was even better. Uh, right across the street from the college, seminary, as I said, was Asbury College. And a number of years before, uh, a wealthy donor had constructed a nine-hole golf course on the back part of, of the college. By this time, there weren't very many people who played golf on the course. They realized that it takes a lot of money to keep up a golf course, so they sort of let it go. But it was used for a lot of people ran around the course, and, and a lot of couples used it to take moonlight strolls. And we like to do that. We like to walk around the golf course, and, and we would talk and laugh and you know, share our hearts with each other. And it was a very special place, and I thought, okay, this is the place to pop the question. So we're studying in the library this night, and I excuse myself, 
and I, and I go out, cross the seminary, cross the street, cross the campus of the college, and, and out. And there was a spot uh, near the 7th Green where there was a tree and a bench that sat there. And we would often, as we walked around, stop, sit on that bench, and just talk for a while. And it was sort of a special place for us. So I'm thinking, that's the place we want to be. So I'm out there, and she doesn't, of course, you know, I said, I'll be right back. Well, you know, it takes a little while to get over there, so I'm running. And I get over there, and I get up to the spot, and the bench is not there. Man, I can't believe it. You know, it was, it was early spring. It had been, you know, they, and the maintenance had picked up the benches off the golf course, taken them on, put them on the campus, and they hadn't put them back out yet. So I ran back to the campus searching for a bench, and I found one. And I don't know if I was supposed to or not, but I took it. And, I, and I'm lugging this bench, you know, it's a metal bench. I'm lugging it up and down the hills and slopes of this golf course out to the seven. It had to be the far, almost the furthest green on the course, out to this course, and I, and I put the bench down there, I get everything ready, make sure I'm not having a heart attack or going to pass out after doing that. And then I race back to the library, and of course, I've been gone a lot longer than I thought I was going to be, and I'm sure Cindy's going, what in the world is he doing? So I come back in, and I tried to calm myself so I'm not panting as I get in there, sweating all over. So I get in, and I, and I talk her, after a few minutes, I talk her into taking a walk. Now, it's Still early spring, probably about, I don't know, in the 40s outside, so it's cold. And she doesn't, I don't think she really wanted to go. But after the whole windshield wiper thing, and then after carrying that bench out there, she was going on a walk. I'm telling you right now. We're going on this walk. So, so she said, okay, so I t- we get out and we start walking around the course. And I don't know, it's you know, a 20-minute walk, 15, 20-minute walk around the course. And we're getting there, and of course, as we're getting closer, my heart's beginning to raise and pound, you know, and, you know, and all this stuff. And, and we're getting closer, and I look up, and I see the green, I see the tree, I see the bench, and I see a couple sitting on the bench. <laughs> I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. My first instinct was to run over there and say, hey, look, you wouldn't even have this bench if I hadn't gone and gotten it. So get off of my bench. I got important things to do. So, you know, I'm like, oh, they'll get off pretty soon. So we walked around some more and we walked around some more and they're still sitting there. I'm thinking, how insensitive can they be? So we wait and wait and finally, you know, Cindy wants to go in. It's cold. Finally, I'm like, all right, they're not moving. So I just got to go ahead with this. So on the other kind of around the other side of the tree, the back a little bit, I popped the question. And she said, yes, so you know. It couldn't have been more than two minutes after that, the couple gets up and leaves. So at least we got to sit on the bench a few minutes before we went in and talked a little bit. Next year, we're going to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. And I've been thinking, maybe we should go back to Wilmore and find that bench. Now, the golf course is not there anymore, and who knows where the benches are, so we probably won't do that. But just suppose that next year for our anniversary, I decided that bench is so important to me that I'm going to go back there by myself. And I'm going to go find that bench, and I'm going to put it by that tree, whether the golf course is there or not. I'm sure the tree is. And I'm going to sit on that bench all day and just have a great time remembering. You'd say, you're nuts. And you would question my relationship with Cindy and my priorities, not to mention how she would feel about my priorities and our relationship. That would be crazy. The bench isn't what defines our relationship. It's, it's, it's us. That's what defines our relationship. The bench is just 
one of those things that helps us remember. And in remembering, fills us with joy about the fact that we've spent our lives together. And somehow, as we remember the things that God brings into our lives, the places, the moments, a song, a window, a spot, somehow to remember that as important as those things are and as, and as valuable as they are to us and as much as they help us, they're not the end. God is. And to remember that being prepared for the day that we don't know when it's going to come, that we have no idea being prepared, and staying focused on Him, And letting this stuff that has been meaningful to us and helpful to us direct our attention to Him. As you think about those places and those moments and and those things, is it possible that maybe they become more important than God? If so, in this moment, now's the time I say, Lord, turn my attention back to you. I don't want to worship these things. They're all passing away. I want to let you use those things. Help me worship you. Father, that's our prayer today. That you will give us grace. To keep our attention focused on you. Thank you for the gifts you give us. Thank you for the wonder of all that you have created and all that we as human beings create. Thank you for the moments that have stirred us and you've used to change us and to inspire us. Thank you for each of them. As we remember those things, let them turn our attention to you. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.